0: lovely to see you all here in what is, I think, my favourite LSE room. uh, I see some of my students here. It's very good, my human rights students and others, and uh, from the general public, it's lovely to see you all. Uh, And welcome to the latest of our events uh, in our kind of trendy, modern way, because what we're trying to do is get away from the traditional 45 minutes followed by one question, followed by a 15-minute to 20-minute answer, followed by the end, and shift things, and when we have such interesting people in LSE, as we do this evening on which more in a moment, have a kind of more informal conversation. So, uh, we are inviting you to listen, but also to tweet during the event, and afterwards, We'll be inviting questions from, obviously, the Hall, but also we'll be taking some tweets that we've had. If you are going to tweet, you could uh, send it to, uh, well, the the thingy is LSE Law, and the hashtag is uh, LSE Costa, LSE Costa. Uh, So we mix the tweets and the question and answers from the audience. Now... Uh, my name is Conor Girty, and I'm a professor of human rights law here at LSE, and I'm delighted to be able to introduce our speaker this evening, uh, who is uh, really exceptional. I've met him before. Uh, Jean-Paul doesn't know this, but I, I used to be very antagonistic to judges. You know, I thought I won't have any judges. And we have a friend who suggested I drive Jean-Paul and bring it to his house for lunch. I thought, I don't want to drive a judge to a house. And I had to pick him up in Middle Temple or somewhere. And that's an even bigger prejudice. I'm a mass of these prejudices. Uh, But by the end of the journey, I thought if there was one person in Europe upon whom I could trust my life, it was Jean-Paul. We had a marvellous conversation. And that he was then, as he had been for, was it five years, President of the European Court of Human Rights made it all the more remarkable that he should have such an interest and a humane engagement in the world. I was really delighted to have met him and his wife, and to have him back at LSE is a tremendous thing for me, personally, as well as, I think, for LSE. He has, in fact, in the best traditions of a pushy journalist, written a book, Which he has here, and it's actually an impressively, attractively presented book in French, but relatively easy, clear print and easy to read, and I was thinking we might try and get a translation into English, and uh, I have a copy here, and it's about partly about the court, partly about the future of the court, and partly about his own engagement with the court. He was on it for many, many years, of course, before he became president, and he's been, therefore, on the front line of so many of these political, political political-legal issues that have circulated around the court over the past few years in particular. Uh, The way we're going to do it is we're going to ask jean Paul to speak for 10 to 15 minutes and then, uh, in other words, not the traditional speech as I said, and then we're going to take the tweets. Uh, We have our uh, Twitter guru lurking in a Twitter guru position. He'll be revealed later on when he comes up to the stage Uh, but that does not mean as I've said before that you're not allowed to do something very traditional which is put your hand up and try and catch the chair's eyes. We'll mix and match like that. Uh, There'll be a lot of we hope conversation and we think we'll finish at about 10 to 8 or so uh, or earlier if, if we wind down. So I think that's it from me. I'd like you all in the best Traditions of LSE courtesy to welcome Jean Paul, who has come over from Paris today to see us and uh, welcome him in the traditional manner. Jean Paul Costa. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh,
1: thank you very much, Conor. Good evening to all of you. Uh, I must say, first of all, that uh, I must confess that it's my first visit, not to London, but to the LSE. Uh, Probably not the last one, but certainly the first one today. And I'm very happy, and uh, of course I accepted uh, very uh, willingly the kind invitation sent to me by Conor, and we discussed the matter in June in Oxford. Uh, Secondly, I would like also to say that maybe... The fact that Conor and I became friends is due to the fact that I am not only a judge. <laughs> I have been a scholar for a lot of my activities in my life. I was, uh, for instance, associate professor in Orléans and then in Paris 1, Pantheon Sorbonne. But it's true that my main activity in all my life was to be a judge. And thirdly, uh, you spoke about engagement and I will try to, to explain in a few sentences what was my experience as a judge, then President uh, in Strasbourg at the European Court of Human Rights, but I also claim to have been all my life, since I was a student, um, well human rights friendly and very committed for defending and trying to protect, as far as possible, rights and liberties. So, a few words about my life before, or my career, before the court. Uh, Well, I was a lawyer. I studied law and political science and public administration in Paris, in the Faculty of Law, in Sciences Po, uh, which is a little the same as the the LAC in Paris, at the Ecole Nationale d'Administration. But I entered the French Conseil d'État, and Conseil d'État is a typical false friend in the sense that it's not only a body which is supposed to counsel the state, the government, the authorities, but it's also the main administrative tribunal in France. You know that at the difference of Britain, France has or has had uh, since more than two centuries two kinds of courts, judicial courts, and at the head, the court of cassation, and administrative courts, and at the head of the pyramid, the Conseil d'État. And I was mainly in the judicial branch of the Conseil d'État, so I have been mainly a judge for almost uh, all my life. In 1998, I was still a member of the Conseil d'État and uh, associate professor of public law in Paris, and I was placed by France on the list of three candidates uh, for the elections of judges at the European Court of Human Rights. And uh, fortunately for me, uh, I was elected by the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. This was in 1998. Uh, six years later in 2004, I was reelected by the Parliamentary Assembly. And uh, eventually, at the the end of uh, 2006, my fellow judges elected me as president of the court when the former, the previous president, Lutzus Wildaber from Switzerland, left the court. I was elected by my colleagues for three years, re elected after three years. They were not so dissatisfied with me, I hope. um, But I could not uh, end my second term of office of uh, three years due to the age limit. And at the end of 2011, I had to leave the court. I could not uh, really uh, believe that I had uh, the age, but my passport was against me and (laughs) I was obliged (laughs) to, to admit the truth. Uh, So I left the court a little more than a year ago and I'm still very much interested in uh, human rights. Uh, One of uh, the evidence of that is that I've just um, published this book uh, uh, whose title is La Cour Européenne des Juges pour la Liberté, the European Court of Human Rights, Judges for Freedom, and it seems to me that Judges for Freedom is a title That reflects well the uh, commitment and the activities, the daily activity of the judges in Strasbourg. Now, a few words about my experience as a judge, eventually as president of the court. There are two very different jobs. Uh, A judge of the European Court of Human Rights is a very uh, fully booked, uh, hard-working man or woman. Uh, We have uh, rather... 35 to 40 percent uh, judges were women, which is not parity, but not uh, not very far from it. Um, So, very hard working because, as you know, the the number of applications uh, brought to Strasbourg has increased very, very quickly since 1998 when the court became a permanent body and when the former European Commission on Human Rights disappeared and it remained. Uh, just the court. But at the same time this uh, work is extremely interesting, uh, sometimes fascinating because you are confronted with all branches of law, all aspects of human rights from the very serious violations of human rights including uh, uh, right to life prohibition of torture, prohibition of slavery and, and so forth to some procedural aspects such as a fair trial but Fair trial is, of course, extremely important as a guarantee for all other rights. So people are in a situation which is heavy but fascinating. And at the same time, the judges in Strasbourg have to be not only very highly qualified but also absolutely independent and impartial. And one of the reasons why it's so important for them All judges have to be independent and impartial. But in Strasbourg, it's more so since, according to the convention which created the court, every judge is not only entitled but obliged to sit in the benches when there is a case against their own country. And you can imagine that if a judge is not impartial, he he would become a kind of advocate of or her own country, and the system could not work because it's based on uh, international activity and international responsibility. I could give you uh, some uh, answers to your questions as regards uh, the work of judge, but I, I immediately pass on to the, the, my experience as president of the court. Nearly five years, and of course in my life, it has been in my career, the cherry on the cake, because I was already very happy and proud to be a judge in the European Court of Human Rights, but being president is different. Uh, when you are president, you, you remain a judge, but you are less a judge by, than beforehand. And really, you are a judge only for two kinds of cases. The Grand Chamber cases, which are extremely important because the Grand Chamber, the 17 judge Grand Chamber of the Court, is the supreme formation, the supreme panel of the Court, uh, and it's uh, the formation which uh, really makes the case law of the Court with, uh, and settles the most important difficult cases. And also, when you are president of the court, you are still the French judge or the British judge or the Luxembourg judge in the case now. So you still have to, to sit in uh, the, the cases against your own state. But apart these two important aspects, the president of the court is, of course, a, a little relieved from the day-to-day uh, work as a judge. But Not being as a judge as before, he becomes more than a judge. And there are many activities which are very important and not very well known from the outside. Uh, First of all, the president of the court is a primus interparis, so he is, in principle, on equal footing with uh, all his fellow judges. But he has, of course, to lead the court, Uh, He has to supervise the management of uh, a court which uh, includes 47 judges, one for each member state, but also 650 uh, staff members, members of the registry. Of course, there is a registrar of the court who is very good. I worked with uh, the the one who is still... uh, register uh, Eric Friberg from Sweden and as I said he is absolutely good but still you are the president of the court and if something does not work at the end of the day you will be found responsible. So it's uh, uh, the management of kind of small medium company of seven hundred people. Secondly you have to represent the court uh, in many senses. You have to to be the interlocutor of the press and the media, and you you have many interviews from journalists, from people from the TV, and so on. Sometimes it works well, sometimes it's more difficult. You have also to represent the court with the member states themselves. And the president of the court is obliged. It's a very interesting, but of course very... Uh, I ring at the same time to pay official visits to the states. I I wanted to visit each and every of the 47 states. I could not make it due to the lack of time, but I visited 37 or 38 uh, 38 countries, which uh, is, of course, already very committing. You have also to receive the heads of states, heads of governments, ministers, uh, other officials who pay visits to Strasbourg. As you know, uh, Strasbourg is not only the seat of the court, it's also the seat of uh, the Council of Europe, and many uh, political leaders or high personalities uh, come to Strasbourg and usually have meetings with the Secretary-General of the Council of Europe, the Parliamentary Assemblies, they make speeches. The first, uh, the Prime Minister of Britain made a speech before the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe at the beginning of 2012, just before the Brighton Conference. And uh, you have also to receive those people who come to the court. For instance, I I received the visit of uh, uh, Angela Merkel from Germany, uh, of uh, the president of Turkey, uh, the, the queen of... Uh, the, well, of well, I don't remember which queen, but the prince of Monaco. It <laughs> <laughs> was not the queen of England. Oh, okay. <laughs> the prince of Monaco and uh, the president uh, of... She's a lady, but not a queen. The president of the Republic of Ireland and, and so on, many, many others. So this is a task which is a kind of uh, protocol, but it's more than protocol, because when you you have contacts with all those people, either in Strasbourg or in their own countries, you have to plead for the court to ask for some means to be given to to the court, uh, even in financial terms and so on. You have also to represent the court uh, with the other institutions and bodies of the Council of Europe. I mentioned the Secretary General, I mentioned the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. There is also the Committee of Ministers, which plays a very important role, because it's a Committee of Ministers which is entitled and in charge of uh, supervising the enforcement of the courts and judgments. Uh, The Committee of Ministers is composed of the Ministers of Foreign Affairs of the 47 states, but uh, usually they are represented in Strasbourg by their ambassadors. They are permanent ambassadors uh, before the Council of Europe, and you have to to be in touch with them very uh, frequently. And finally, you have, of course, I, I forget some other activities or have no time to develop, too much, but you have to to lead, really, the the court uh, and to try to overcome the difficulties and obstacles. And during my presidency, there were a lot of obstacles and difficulties to overcome. And I will end this introduction by mentioning the main challenges that I had to face during my five years uh, term of president of the court. When I was elected, a few days, well, of course, I was very, very happy. I was in a state of euphoria. But just a few days after, uh, very bad news, the Russian Federation refused to ratify Protocol 14 to the convention. And probably many of you know that the Protocol 14 to the convention was a very important tool to make the court more effective more efficient and to be able to uh, settle the very very um, many numerous uh, cases or applications received in Strasbourg. but the protocols to the convention have to be ratified by unanimity by all the member states and so russia was the last one which are not ratified, and when the news arrived that uh, the state Duma, the Chamber of Parliament, uh, refused to authorize the ratification of uh, Protocol 14, it was terribly uh, discouraging for everyone. And we say to ourselves, with my colleagues and with uh, the registry staff, it's terrible because We never know if uh, one day Protocol 14 will enter into force. And during three years, I devoted a a lot of energy to convince the Russians to ratify without uh, compromises. uh, When uh, Russia was found in violation of uh, articles of the convention, sometimes of very serious uh, uh, violations of human rights, it was not uh, uh, absolutely uh, not uh, possible to to change our attitude. We had to, to be very firm against uh, Russia. But at the same time, it was necessary to try and convince them to ratify. And, well, I have no time, but maybe for the questions uh, I can explicit a little this. But uh, with various means political, legal, diplomatic. Uh, Finally, uh, what was expected by everyone, but without too much hope, uh, took place. Uh, I had uh, convinced Switzerland to convene a conference at ministerial level in Interlaken in April 2010. This was followed... uh, So year after by conference in Izmir, Turkey, and in 2012 in Brighton, but the very uh, day of the opening of the conference in Interlaken, the Russian Minister of Justice for Justice came to Interlaken with the instruments of ratification of Protocol 14. This was, of course, a great victory, and I was so happy to have this uh, challenge uh, won. Well, I I could also mention briefly some other challenges, political crisis. Uh, Sometimes countries within the Council of Europe and within the European Convention on Human Rights are conflicting between themselves. And of course, with very bad consequences for the atmosphere, but also for the the human rights themselves. I can mention Cyprus and and Turkey, for instance, Armenia and Azerbaijan, Uh, Georgia and Russia and this was a terrible crisis in summer 2008. In August there was even a war, a short war between Georgia and uh, Russia and this had some repercussions even inside the court and uh, there, there was an application of Georgia against Russia but I can also give some details afterwards if you wish. And of course, the last political crisis, well, there was also a, a, crisis, a political crisis between Russia and Baltic states, uh, such as Latvia, with consequences on the cases and the case law. And finally, the last political crisis was not between two states, but between one state, Britain, and the court uh, with... Uh, uh, this conflict about um, the judgment made by the court uh, by the court, uh, which concerns the right to vote of the detainees, and uh, you know that this is a conflict which is less acute now but still not completely solved. so uh, I would say that when I left the court, uh, my friend Connor asked me a few minutes before, "Do you miss the court?" I said well no well it 's uh, more complex than that, of course, I missed the call because I was so happy in the court with my colleagues, with uh, people in the registry, with the problems to to try and solve, but uh, at the same time, it was so tiring that uh, i 'm a little relieved to not to be anymore uh, uh, the captain of the boat. But uh, also, it's very important for, for me, it's my philosophy, but it's very important for any institution that you turn the pages, younger people arrive, take their responsibilities, and have to, to make things advance. I am very optimistic about the future of the court, and uh, it seems to me that it's good that younger people are now in charge and can make this uh, future uh, happen. Thank you very much. Thank
0: you. Thank you. I'm going to to call Bradley in a moment, but you mentioned right at the start there, Jean-Paul, a couple of times elections, and some of us may be surprised that you uh, were elected both to the... Was there much politics? I mean, did you have a rival candidate to be president of the European Court of Human Rights, or when the French were promoting you, did you have to see off other... Candidates. How political yeah. is that process of appointment? For becoming
1: president? You well, both in a way. First yes. becoming
0: a judge and then becoming president. Uh, becoming
1: a judge, well, the convention is very clear. Uh, when uh, uh, there is a vacancy for a state, uh, for any reason, uh, the state uh, is uh, obliged to, uh, or called for uh, having a list of three candidates, possibly. of of both genders, and sometimes the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe refused some lists because, for instance, there were no women on the list. But you have a list of three. According to the convention, the candidates uh, candidates have to be highly qualified from the legal point of view, but also from the moral point of view, for ethical reasons. And the Parliamentary Assembly hearings of the candidates, and finally votes by secret ballot, and one of the three is elected. You need the absolute majority at the first round, and and if there is not the case, you have a second uh, second, uh, ballot. Uh, As regards the president, there is nothing in the convention. The only rule is, of course, that the president must be elected by the judges, not anymore by the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, in order to increase his or her independence. And, uh, well, what happens in practice is that you have several candidates, usually the most senior judges uh, who have already have the responsibilities. Myself, I was vice-president before becoming a president, but uh, you have several candidates, and you have uh, to, to make to organise a vote. And the rules of the courts provide for a rule, which is, if one uh, candidate gets um, the absolute majority, is elected. If not, the last in rank is eliminated, and it's like. Ah quarterfinals, semifinals, and final. And when I was elected, there were four candidates and we, have, we had three rounds. And finally, I, I was uh, the winner. Uh, so it's, uh, it's really, in a sense, it's democratic. It's, as I said, you have no interferences on the states, of the states. It's really the judges who try to vote for the best ones. It's not exactly like the Pope, but, <laughs> <laughs> but in a sense... It's, awesome. it's the secular Pope in the consistory and it, It's Strasbourg. a secular Pope, and we have no, no, no so, white smoke. No,
0: but lots of dinner parties with fellow judges in the run-up to this campaign election.
1: <laughs> yeah, yes, but there is a campaign. And, there, and, and it is true. You know the, the story is in Rome. When you enter Pope in the conclave... You get out as cardinal, yeah. it's a little the same in uh, in Strasbourg. It's not always a favourite candidate who is elected.
0: Ah, oh, very interesting. Well, uh, we're now going to ask uh, Bradley to come up. Bradley is going to give you a little lecture on tweeting, and I think we'll open with a Twitter question. Uh, so, Bradley is our colleague and expert, and uh, our Twitter guru, Bradley. Over to you.
2: Hello. I don't know about expert, but uh, I'll give it my best shot. Um, yeah, so any questions you might have for our guests, then tweet them to at LSE Law and use the hashtag, uh, hashtag LSE Costa. Uh, we have got some already pre-prepared, but I'm keeping an eye on it with my trusty iPad. So if you've got uh, any questions or comments on what's being said, then please do tweet them. Our first question comes from Benjamin P. Ward, who asks, has UK criticism of the European Court of Human Rights damaged respect for it in other uh, Council of Europe states? What would impact be if UK left the Council of Europe?
1: Okay, as you see, there are two questions, which are slightly different. The first question is, it's true that when there was this wave of uh, British criticism against the Court, some other countries mainly in Western Europe, were uh, following up and uh, adopting a little the same attitude. I'm thinking, for instance, uh, of the Netherlands, uh, Switzerland in a, in a sense, and uh, a little Belgium as well. And clearly, it was – well, in the case of Netherlands, there was a, a change, and alternance uh, in government. And uh, it was rather ideological, but for the other states, it was clearly the, the influence and the weight of the United Kingdom which was influential. But now, things, especially after Brighton, which has cooled down a little the conflicts, uh, well, th- there is a change, and uh, well, the atmosphere is more in favor of the court. But as regards some Eastern States, Russia, Ukraine, uh, Moldova, and uh, also a country which is not exactly Eastern but uh, Turkey, well, South Eastern. Uh, there are still criticism against the court, but for different reasons. And uh, clearly, the fact that uh, the court has very often made judgments finding Russia or Ukraine in violation of the Convention for serious violations has created uh, some problem. Second question by Mr. Benjamin Ward, what would impact be if UK left the Council of Europe? I said already, uh, this question was put to me by the BBC uh, two years ago, or a little less uh, than two years, and I said it would be a disaster for the Council of Europe, but it would be no good for the UK as well. And I tried to explain why, and I said, well, the UK has the image of a country a little like France, uh, a country that uh, over the centuries has developed protection of rights and liberties, the habeas corpus, the Bill of Rights, and so on, and in France, the Declaration de 1789. But uh, if a country uh, gives the opposite image of not being interested anymore in the Council of Europe, but mainly in the court and protection of human rights at European level, it's very counterproductive. And, uh, but I was, if I may, I I was imprudent. Usually I am prudent, (laughs) but this day I was imprudent. This uh, journalist of the BBC was extremely correct, but my answer to to her questions uh, was a little distorted by the tabloid press afterwards. Because I said, By the way, no country has ever left the Council of Europe, with the exception of of Greece during the dictatorship of the colonels. And I say, I cannot imagine that United Kingdom. And in the tabloid press, my sentence, which was absolutely neutral and respectful, and I am an anglophile, my, uh, my, uh, my sentence was completely transformed. And in substance, as well, this bloody French uh, compares our prime minister to
0: a Greek colonel. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a great believer in freedom of expression. I know that, and you've been tested. You've been tested. Uh, we'll, we'll go to the audience in a minute, but perhaps we'll take the related second sure.
2: tweet, uh, Bradley. Uh, this is from Amy Ruth Williams. Uh, is there a danger that pushing for reform of the courts because of perceived meddling in the UK will weaken its impact elsewhere?
1: Well, it's a question which is not completely different from the, okay. the first one, from the previous one. Uh, yes, there is a, certainly there is a danger because you know uh, human rights have been in crisis in Europe uh, since the beginning of uh, the 21st century Uh, because, of course, of the uh, 9-11 and uh, all the crisis uh, linked to terrorism in the United States, in the UK, in Spain, in some other countries, and people, uh, public opinion, and uh, we can understand that, uh, are sometimes more keen on uh, security than on liberty. And so when there are criticism of uh, a court, an institution like the court, Uh, which is supposed to defend liberty without neglecting security, of course. But, uh, well, there is a kind of uh, misunderstanding or bad understanding by public opinion in many countries. And one very important uh, country, uh, uh, a founding father of the Council of Europe and of the conventions, such as the United Kingdom, is criticism and uh, saying that the court has to be reformed, but clearly in a way uh, which is supposed to weaken the court instead of strengthening it. This has an importance for many, for many people and uh, for an impact in other countries.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's been a move here. We saw an example actually very recently with a very well-known judge called Lord Justice Laws to say, look, you know, why do we have to follow this Strasbourg stuff? You know, we have the Human Rights Act, we have this terrific British version of the Convention, and of course many people here will will know that the United Kingdom Supreme Court in a case called Horncastle said, we've looked very carefully at what you say in another case on, on admitting hearsay evidence, I'm sure you know the case, and we think you're wrong. And then the chamber, the Grand Chamber, sort of slightly changed its position. I suppose I've got a question, which is whether under pressure from this movement within Britain, which even judges are beginning to articulate as the need for a separate Bill of Rights, is there a risk that the Strasbourg Court, of which of course now you are no longer a member, will become a little bit quiescent, a little quiet, a little accepting of statements in various countries about we know our system, here are our rights, you don't understand us, subsidiarity.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, you, you touch a very important problem. Among the activities of the President of the Court uh, that I mentioned before, I did not insist, but I can insist now, about what I can I call judicial diplomacy, I mean judicial diplomacy is judicial dialogue. you have in Europe supreme and constitutional courts, the so Supreme Court in the UK, uh, constitutional courts in Germany, in Italy in France and, and so and so forth and sometimes these courts have the impression that the court is deaf and dumb and, and at least deaf and uh, don 't understand well or don 't listen enough to uh, the judgments and rulings made by the National Courts. We we are convinced that it's uh, partly true, and uh, we tried to uh, really have a constructive judicial dialogue with these courts. I will take just an example. Recently, a year ago, we made a a judgment uh, of the Grand Chamber in a case called Al kawaja and Tariqi, yeah. two cases, um, against the United Kingdom. And which is remarkable is that the Green Chamber, the Chamber, the 7 judge Chamber, previously had ruled and was clearly uh, against the position taken by the House of Lords and eventually the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court and Lord Phillips wrote the judgment uh, in another judgment, but in the same matter. Uh, really uh, gave the impression that he wanted the, the Strasbourg Court to revise its position. And we took the opportunity of the case being referred to the Grand Chamber to actually revise the position and make a step towards. The Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. And this is not isolated. I can also explain that we have not uh, time enough. The two cases of Von Hanover versus Germany. Yeah. Von Hanover is Caroline of Monaco, and uh, she won a case, she lost a case in, uh, in Germany and won it in, in Strasbourg. Eventually, the constitutional court of Germany uh, changed its case law to make a stamp. towards the case law of the European Court, and in the second Fonanova case, we made the opposite step. So it's possible, well, theoretically, the court in Strasbourg has the final say, uh, the final word, structurally, but it's good to have also uh, really uh, constructive dialogue with uh, national courts.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm going to stand up so that I can see everybody. And I'm going to ask for two or three questions or comments. We have a gentleman at the back. I'd like you to say who you are. So we'll do three, and then we'll go back to uh, some tweeting. So we have the gentleman at the back. Then we have this lady I know you, and uh, then we'll take this chap here. So, and I'll come to you a bit later on, sir. So name, if, uh, background, and, and question or comment.
1: Hi, my name is uh, Dbaba Amili. Um <clears throat> I've got one or two questions. Um, is the concept or the principle of margin of appreciation is legal or political? And how often do you use in favor of the states, member states? Second, uh, does European Court of Human Rights encourage the? Developing countries, judicial system, do you have any scheme or has anybody approached the court to support them uh, to upgrade their systems, for example, from Africa or Latin America or Asia or anywhere else? And this is my question, but the main question is the margin of appreciation. How often do you use them? That's, I want to know. Thank you.
0: Okay, we'll take two more, but political or legal, I think I heard as well. Uh, front end.
1: Uh, if you don't mind, I will imi- if you don't mind, I immediately yep. answer these two questions, because they are both important. The margin of appreciation is really a, a judge-made doctrine of theory. It was not in the Convention. It was created by the court itself when the court realized f- that for some matters, it's important to leave a margin of maneuver to the states. I say to some matters, of course, if you you take cases of torture, for instance, it's clear that you cannot give to any state a margin of appreciation. Facts which are constituting uh, torture in France are the same as in Bulgaria, the same as in Portugal, and so forth. But for some other uh, matters, for instance, for political rights, when you have the balancing exercise of... uh, uh, For instance, freedom of speech and the rights of the persons, and so on. Well, the court said that it would be wise to leave a kind of margin of appreciation to the states due to their legal, legal, uh, cultural, religious traditions. As regards your, uh, well, and uh, ironically, the margin of appreciation, as you know, will be put in the convention, in the preamble of the convention. Due to the Brighton Declaration, at the end of the Brighton Conference, a declaration was adopted by consensus by all the states and saying that subsidiarity principle and margin of appreciation should be in the convention. And finally, the the best place will be the preamble of the convention. But it's a little ironical because I repeat that the court itself gives this kind of uh, safety valve to, to the states. As regards the influence of, um, of the court and uh, its relations with other countries in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, yes, we have context. First of all, the European Convention is, of course, the oldest one, but after you had the uh, conventions and courts of the same type, in America, in Africa, now there is a, a kind of embryo of... Uh, organization in Southeast Asia in the uh, ASEAN countries. And we try as much as possible to to help these new courts. But it's not unilateral. I mean that we also take benefit of what is said and decided by other courts. For instance, um, well, Latin America was famous, sadly famous for uh, disappearances of people. And uh, and the uh, Inter-American Court of Human Rights in San Jose de Costa Rica developed a very interesting and very courageous courageous case law saying, well, if someone disappears in uh, mysterious circumstances, it's up to the state to explain why this person was not found and at least whether the investigation was correct and so on. And we we were inspired by this jurisprudence of uh, the inter-American
0: court. Interesting. So give and take. Thank you very much. I will take two in a row now.
3: Uh, Hello, I'm Francesca. Thank you very much for all your interesting insights so far. I'm Francesca Klug from the Center for the Study of Human Rights here at the LSE and the colleague of Connors. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to take you back to one of your crises, uh, the prisoner voting rights issue the Hurst case. You said that things are a bit quieter now, but I'm afraid they're going to get noisier again, as you will know, before too long. Uh, The government has produced a paper with three options for Parliament to debate uh, on this issue, one of which involves doing nothing, no change, retaining the blanket ban on prisoners' voting. Should that be approved by Parliament? and? My bet, a lot of people's bet, if I were a betting person, is that I'm afraid it will, the no change option. What will the Strasbourg organs do? What will the court do and what will the Council of Ministers do? Hey,
0: I'm tempted to let you answer okay. that straight away. No, go ahead. That's, that's so, good. I don't want to give you a chance to get out of that one. No. This is one that matters. I'm waiting
1: here. for the signal.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: but I prepare myself. Okay, <laughs> sir. My name is Hussein Arslan. I'm a Master of Science Human Rights student. Uh, you mentioned that uh, judges must remain partial. As a former president, do you think um, the European Court of Human Rights is totally an independent body, especially in terms of um, the Grand Chamber's decision? Thanks.
0: Thank you.
1: Okay, so I answer these uh, two uh, series of questions. Uh, as regards uh, first. first there was, from the very beginning, a misunderstanding. Sincere or not sincere, I cannot judge. In Hearst, the Grand Chamber uh, of the Court, said simply that the blanket interdiction to any detainee to vote was excessive in terms of uh, Protocol uh, Article 3 of Protocol 1, right to vote. Why so? Because... Well, the decision, uh, or the legislation, if you wish, was such that any person, whichever the reason why he was a detainee, uh, whatever duration of uh, the penalty and the imprisonment, uh, was uh, prevented from voting. And what the Committee of Ministers, which is in charge of uh, the execution of the court's judgments, asked to uh, the UK government and parliament, but since 2005, because it's a a judgment of uh, seven, eight years ago, is to adopt a legislation which would respect the uh, interdiction of a ban, a blanket ban, and give a kind of more flexible uh, legislation. And this was confirmed by the court in the pilot judgment of Greens and also in the Scopola versus Italy case, where the court found no violation of the same provisions from the part of Italy, because the Italian legislation was restricting from for the people having a very long uh, term of imprisonment the interdiction to vote. So uh, your question is also what will the Strasbourg organs do? You know that uh, the Committee of Ministers recently, just before Chris- Christmas, uh, gave 18 months more to the UK authorities to adopt a legislation which would fulfill all this case law of the court, Hearst, Green Scopola. What will happen after? Uh, I well, I would not like to compare the UK to to Greece, but, uh, <laughs> but Be one, one of the only cases where a country refused really to, to execute a judgment of the court was in the case of the Greek refineries against Greece and finally, after many years, too much delay but the judgment was enforced. So, this time I would wish that uh, uh, Greece would be followed even when it's virtuous. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know, but <laughs> that. Yes, for, for, but for, for, those, for those who didn't hear that no, and really but but bother, it's, it's tying up with a, coming up with a general election so I think Francesca's making that point just for people listening.
1: Yes, but uh, uh, frankly speaking, it's, it's not... Uh, to the court, to, to, well, it's a committee of ministers which is sovereign. You know, in 1998, uh, a big progress was made when all the adjudication powers of the committee of ministers of the Council of Europe were suppressed and the court became the only judge. But still, the fact that a political body, such as the committee of ministers, is in charge of the execution of judgments is also sometimes uh, subject
0: to criticism. Does it frustrate you, Jean-Paul, just before we go to the next question, does it frustrate you that your implementation of your judgments is handed over to what is quite explicitly a political body? Is that frustrating?
1: Well, uh, <laughs> well, it's a difficult question um, because as a committee of ministers, I will answer the question about the impartiality of yeah. judges. But the political people, all the ambassadors uh, who compose a community of ministers, they must not be impartial. They are political exactly. people, they, found, they find compromises, they try to reach consensus and so on. So it's more a political fight and uh, if a country is uh, really a strong country with uh, some influence and so on, it has more chances, uh, this country has more chances to be let's say, uh, uh, to have a committee of ministers, indulgent. And if it's a small country, very weak, it's different. Mm-hmm. Okay, I okay. will take the Thank question you. about... Yeah, sure, yeah. We uh, well, um, the composition of the Grand Chamber is something uh, that I have to explain. Uh, according to the convention, you are in the Grand Chamber, uh, a core of uh, six judges, the president of the court, the two vice presidents, and the three uh, section presidents who are not vice presidents of the court at the same time, who in principle sit in all grand chamber cases. So this has been, uh, let's say, conceived by the drafters of the convention to uh, ensure some consistency in the case law, because if if you have five, six judges who are always in the Grand Chamber, they normally are consistent in the case law, and uh, this is good for the credibility of the court. As regards the 11 other judges, uh, it's a... drawing by lots, the president of the court, who is at the same time the president of the grand chamber, before each grand chamber hearing and deliberations, have to compose, has to compose uh, the grand chamber and draws people by lots. And in order to avoid some, uh, let's say, uh, misgivings, because you have not uh, uh, too many uh, grand chamber hearings and deliberations. We have adopted rules, for instance, if a judge is drawn by lot uh, twice in a row, the third time, his or her name was, will not be on the list to give chances of people being uh, equal number in the grand chamber, and this works. But this works, but you cannot prevent that uh, according to this drawing of lots, you have not the same sensitiveness in a grand chamber than in another. And that's, that's it. But at the same time, you have uh, 47 judges. It would be unreasonable to have a bench of 47 judges. It would not be manageable. So we, we are obliged, to, or the convention is obliged to find a, a practical solution. As regards impartiality, I can say two words, uh, according and based on my experience. First of all, all the judges I've known during my 13 years in, in, the, in the court have been really impartial. And sometimes this was courageous because when they returned to their countries after leaving the court, sometimes they were very not, uh, not very well welcome. And the second thing on that I would say is that even when A judge is a so-called national judge. I mean, he is sitting in an important case, a delicate case uh, against his or her country. Even in this case, I I found that, in principle, the judges were really impartial. And, for instance, uh, countries which are uh, very often uh, condemned by the court, such as Russia or Turkey, if you analyze the, the votes, Many, many times the Russian judge or the Turkish judge have voted
0: against their country. Thanks. We're going to do some more tweets, and then we'll come back to the audience. Uh, we'll take one that we've, as it were, prepared earlier, and then we'll take one that's just
2: come in. Uh, this is from Eve Wright. Do you agree with Judge Bonello's point on jurisdiction and human rights imperialism in al Skaney?
0: No. You need to be a well-informed uh, <laughs> human rights person. That is an amazing concurring opinion in a case which extended the uh, convention to a, to uh, parts of Iraq. So, it's very yes, very uh, strong. Do you agree with them?
1: I, I was smiling when I read and heard this question because Judge Bonello is a former Maltese judge who is an excellent judge, very learned and uh, very good. Is sometimes paradoxical because. You know, the journalists are used to call the judges or to divide and classify the judges of the courts in two categories, the violationist or violationist and non-violationist. And clearly, Judge Bonello was in the second category. So I mean that more often than not, he he voted against the state, the defending state whatever state, even Malta. <laughs> uh, but in al uh, he looks like, and uh, his dissent, he, he wrote very uh, learned and very elegant uh, dissenting or conquering opinions. His dissent in al is clearly putting him, rightly or wrongly, in the conservative side. Because he said, well, the court goes too far, the court extends the extraterritorial uh, application of the European Convention on Human Rights, and uh, this is a step too far or too, or too bold, and so on. I, I disagree with uh, Judge Bonello for two reasons. Uh, first of all, legally, I think that uh, the arguments of the majority, I was in the majority in Arskeny, uh, are convincing And secondly, uh, it's a reason which is more, let's say, tactical, or not tactical, but uh, I mean, it's an evolution of international public law and even the high judges in UK have adopted the same attitude. So it's not an isolation of uh, the court. Uh, it's a tendency, uh, you find it in the EG for the International Court of Justice. You can find it in uh, Luxembourg uh, with the uh, famous CADI case. Uh, uh, and, and so on. The, the territorial jurisdiction is now uh, remains the main criterion of jurisdiction, but you have more and more extraterritorial cases of uh,
2: jurisdiction. Yeah, thank you. Uh, another tweet and then the audience. A question from at commentator01, which is Eve Nolan. Uh, Given the impact of EC crisis and austerity, does he think uh, there will be more cases brought to the European Court of Human Rights on social rights-related issues?
0: This has just come in. It's not one that we had Uh, earlier, but austerity Uh, and the uh, impact and whether there's anything in the Convention on Social and Economic Rights. Yes,
1: it's an an extremely important uh, question. Uh, first of all, I, I recall, uh, I remind you that uh, uh, normally the European Convention on Human Rights does not cover social rights. The social rights at the European level are protected under another instrument of the Council of Europe, the European Social Charter, which is less binding or at least less judicial than the Convention. There is a European Committee of Social Rights, which uh, does an excellent job, but is a quasi-jurisdiction, a little like the Human Rights Committee of the United Nations, in the sense that it makes more recommendations than binding judgments. In the Convention, you have a few social rights. For instance, uh, uh, trade union rights, is included in the Convention under Article 11, which protects uh, freedom of association. Right to education, which is a political but also a social right, is protected under the Convention in Protocol No. 1, Article 2 of Protocol 1. But the big majority of the the social rights, health, uh, work, uh, uh, social security, and so forth, are not protected under the Convention which is reproached uh, to the court now, and especially in the times of austerity and crisis, is to have extended the social rights and, at least for some of them, introduced them in the convention by a kind of uh, church-made uh, decisions. And personally, I am th- sensitive to this argument It seems to me that what was possible, let's say, 20, 30 years ago when uh, there was expansion, growth, and so on, becomes less realistic now. Because if the countries become poor or at least have less possibilities of uh, expansion and growth, the welfare state has not to be extended. It, It has to be protected, not decreased, but... Extended would be a little paradoxical and unrealistic. And this could give birth to criticism against the court which would be, according to me, well-founded.
0: Yes, thank you. I'm going to get up to see people. We've got this gentleman. We're going to be, there's so many hands. It's fantastic. And we're rattling through it, but we need to be fairly disciplined in the questions we ask. This gentleman, sh- uh, short question, the lady just behind him, and the gentleman just with his hand up on, on the left. Your name and a shortish question, if you could. And I think we'll take all three in a row. Jean-Paul. Okay. Uh,
4: thank you, uh, Monsieur, Monsieur Costa and Professor Gautier. My name is George Davis. I'm an Iraqi. I want to ask you a question, or oh, two questions. in matter of fact, when the late President Saddam, who was apprehended by the American occupiers but was not treated as a prisoner of war, was handed to despots governing Iraq and was subsequently tried for misdemeanors which he was not charged with initially and subsequently was executed. And is it open for me as an individual to indict Tony Blair for the crimes he committed against Iraq and against my family specifically and what options do I have also to indict Sarkozy, President Sarkozy for in, inciting the violence in Libya.
0: Right, and it may not be that you can answer as president, former president of the European Court of Human but we're grateful for the questions. I think this lady, was it, did I have you next? Coming microphone on your left, madam, and name and short question.
5: Um, hello, my name is Katya Ivanova uh, and I'm at the European Institute at the LSE. Um,
0: oh, sorry. I- <laughs> <laughs> That was a rather dramatic pause. <laughs> we allow people from the audience I heard student. a very
1: charming voice, but they, <laughs> I did not know where the voice was. <laughs> yes, Please. ahead. And um, if you can speak a little louder also. Yes,
5: yeah. Um, yeah, sure. Um, I have a question regarding the um, Roma minority. Yes. Um, it has been said by uh, European Roma rights uh, lawyers that in the past decade or so... Um, European anti-discrimination law has become synonymous with a uh, Roma case law. Uh, and I just uh, wanted to briefly to talk about uh, how uh, Romani case law came on the uh, European Court of Human Rights agenda. You have had a successive stream of positive judgments um, with respect to Romani applicants. Uh, and uh, my second question has to do with uh, impact of those judgments uh, on Roma-related policies uh, in Central and East European states. Um, for example, if you could comment a little bit on the implementation of the judgment of the 2007 DH and others case and the mandate for desegregation in state schools uh, – in, um, in national schools.
0: Um, Okay, we'll take it at that, because the impact is an important one, and we'll speak to that. And lastly, in this round, lastly, uh, chap who's already got the microphone through pre-planning.
6: Thank you, John Paul. Uh, Luke McDonough from the Law Department here at LSE. I wanted to ask you about um, whether you think that there's a danger that the European Convention um, is steadily becoming subverted by big business. So, for example, last year, there was the claim by a number of hedge funds who were owed money by Greece that if Greece defaulted on its debts, they would take a case to the European Court of Human Rights uh, on the basis of deprivation of property. So, do you think that such a case would be a subversion of the purpose of...
1: Excuse the, me, which case, uh, Greek case, are you mentioning?
6: Th- th- this case hasn't come but, uh, yet because the, um, Greece has not defaulted on its on its debts, but... Um, several hedge hedge funds threatened that if Greece refused to pay its bondholders, they would take a case to the the European Court.
0: And we remember King Constantine who made a little bit of money once upon a time at the European Court.
1: Okay, well, uh, in answering uh, your questions, sir, and uh, also your questions, Madame, uh, I would like to to remind all of you that the, the court does not choose its cases. It's dependent on the applications and uh, it explains why uh, certainly we will never we, my former colleagues will never have to to adjudicate cases about Uh, former president of Iraq or former president of Libya, because there are no real uh, grounds for that, no applications. And as regards the responsibility of the former prime minister of Britain, uh, Mr. Blair, well, it's not clearly a question for our court, because our court is uh, responsible for litigation against states, not against persons. We are sometimes mixed with the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg, but we are also sometimes mixed or confused with um, uh, criminal, uh, international criminal courts, either former uh, Yugoslavia or Rwanda or the International Criminal Court as such. Uh, So it's not really for avoiding your questions, but uh, I don't see clearly uh, how the court could have had jurisdiction in in the case you you are mentioning. As regards Roma discrimination, your your question is twofold. Uh, The importance of the cases and the, the execution or enforcement or implementation of those cases. Uh, in the case of the Roma minority, there were a number of applications brought to the court uh, in different uh, kind of, uh, of fields i mean uh, uh, many of them were regarding discrimination in education and you you were making reference to the judgments against uh, the Czech Republic and Croatia with discrimination between the pupils. Uh, the Roma pupils and the other ones, and we, the court found a violation of Article 2 of Protocol 1 in both cases, and there was a, a, a case, a very serious case of discrimination against Bulgaria uh, in, uh, in a case where the police uh, shot people, and it was found afterwards that uh, They were shot mainly because they were Roma, not simply because they were escaping the police. So these questions are important. You know that the Council of Europe and also the European Union are very much aware of the vulnerability of the Roma populations in many uh, European states, mainly in Eastern and Central Europe. And so those judgments are supporting the idea that uh, discriminating against the Roma minority is absolutely to be, has to be avoided. As regards now, the impact of judgments, uh, of course, it's very difficult because in the cases of education, what was claimed both by the Czech government and by the Croatian government, is that they had made a lot of efforts. And if you read carefully the judgments of the court, these efforts are recognized and acknowledged. But still, it's, it's, it's necessary to, to, go, to do better and to go further. But uh, it's also a question we, we find, again, the argument of austerity of the economic and financial crisis, And it's not very easy for those governments to really improve the situation. What is important is now at the level of the Council of Europe, the Parliamentary Assembly, the Committee of Ministers and the Court and the European Commissioner for Human Rights, there is more commitment in favour of the Roma minorities. But the situation is still very difficult. I visited a number of those countries, and when you have 10% or 15% of the population which is belonging to such minority, it's extremely difficult to, to make positive steps. So I'm not that optimistic, but still it's possible to. to and as regards finally, your question, uh, I cannot spe- speculate because, as you say, the, the problem has not been uh, solved yet, and um, which is true is that uh, probably we will have more and more cases of this kind. It's also a repercussion of the crisis. I mean, for instance, for uh, Article 41 of the Convention about uh, um, just satisfaction, uh, well, we had a case law in the court saying that uh, the states had to pay to the victims some sums, and uh, if uh, if uh, the violation was serious, the uh, damages were more serious, and uh, uh, sums to be paid also to, had to be increased. But now many countries say, "Well, we cannot uh, make it because uh, we have no money anymore for for paying." and uh, Let's take an example which which, uh, has struck me. One of my last visits to a country was to Romania. And in Romania, they have a structural problem of uh, payment of damages to people who had been uh, deprived from their properties at the times of And afterwards, uh, the post-communist governments and parliaments adopted legislation legislations very favorable to the former owners or landlords. And finally, uh, when they could not recuperate the house, because in, in the meantime, a family has, put, uh, has been put inside, a poor family which was, you know, it was not possible to expel them and so on. The only, way, uh, was, the only way out was compensation, financial compensation. But simply, the country has no money anymore. The legislation was too generous and we adopted a pilot judgment saying to Romania, in a sense, or between the, the, the lines, reduce the generosity of your legislation in order to have at least a partial financial compensation for people being in an unjust
0: situation. Mm. So it's very difficult, is it, to achieve any kind of structural change? Exactly. Does that exactly. sometimes cause you to worry, you know? Yes. Well, actually,
1: uh, you, are, you, you remember that the very first pilot judgment was Bronnowski versus Poland back to 2004, and uh, this was also a consequence of the, the war and the displacements of population just after the Second World War. And finally, due to uh, um, favorable circumstances, Good, good uh, reactions of the govern- Polish government, good cooperation between the Committee of Ministers, the government, and the court, uh, the financial situation of Poland, which was favorable at that time. It was possible to execute, to enforce the pilot judgment, and to find a good equilibrium between the rights of the victims and the possibilities of. Uh, of the the state and the taxpayers. But, uh, well, in this case, Brunovsky was really the pilot-pilot judgment, adopted in many other uh, hypotheses, but sometimes for financial reasons, it's difficult to
0: implement a pilot judgment. We'll we'll take another tweet, which is connected, I think, because it's about delay, isn't it? This is one that's just come in.
2: A new yeah. one. Yeah, this is from the. Kordik- uh, excuse my pronunciation. Kordakovsky Center. Is that right? That'll, that'll it's do It's possible. It? Yeah, it's, it's possible. Uh, why does the ECHR take so long over some priority status cases? For example, after seven years, it is yet to make a decision, R.E. Lebedev.
0: So it's about delay, really, yeah, and, delay. and about the de- yes. long periods of time before cases yeah. come up to you. Yes.
1: Well, uh, things are starting to improve, but the situation until now has been very serious. Why? Because with a huge number of applications, the result of the situation was that the, the backlog was still increasing, uh, and in the backlog there were not only clearly inadmissible cases, unmeritorious cases, but also meritorious cases, cases well funded and in some circumstances constitutive of uh, very serious violations of human rights. So the court tried to react uh, five four or five years ago by adopting a, a priority policy, saying, well, will try to give priority to the cases which become the most urgent, either for the seriousness of the violation or because the applicant is a child or is an old person. uh, And, well, some criteria were designed by the, the plenary session of the court, and we have tried to put this into action... But still you have cases which are adjudicated after seven years, eight years, sometimes more. Things are improving because uh, for the first time in 2011, the number of pending applications has very, very significantly decreased. And uh, for giving figures which uh, are very impressive, The highest level was at the end of 2010 uh, or 2011 when there was, in the dockets of the court, 152,000 pending cases. (laughs) At the end of 2012, the number was decreased to 128,000. Well, it means that even if this good tendency, which is quite new, uh, is prolonged... uh, during the next years, it will take five or six or seven years before having a really satisfactory uh, solution. So it's necessary more and more to develop priority policies. Fortunately, you have also the the interim measures, Rule 39 of the Rules of the Court. When there are very uh, serious and irreversible situations, Uh, the applicants and their lawyers can ask to the court to take interim measures and to um, order to the defending state to stop the measure. For instance, if uh, well, the the best example is uh, an alien who uh, is subject to expulsion or extradition or whatever to a country where he he or she faces serious violations of human rights, torture, uh, inhuman degrading treatment, sometimes right to life, because if you expel uh, a Chinese dissident to China, he he can be uh, convicted to death penalty and even executed. So uh, and you have other examples, not only aliens, but for instance, we have uh, had a, a number of Georgian cases where people were detainees in prison and uh, uh, ill and not cured in prisons, and uh, we had to decide in the court on the basis of interim measures to order Georgia to send those people in hospitals to be uh, very well taken mm-hmm. care of. So even if the situation is bad, there are some, let's say, accommodations or attenuations of, uh, very of interesting. But uh, the question is, of course, very relevant, yeah. and I hope that if you invite me within
0: five years,
1: I can come with good news from
0: Cesar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to take a couple from the floor and another tweet. So I'm, I see the gentleman at the back, who may have already tweeted anyway. We'll take you, Sorry, You may be going to articulate it. This lady is now standing up, such as her keenness, and this gentleman is being very discreet and there's nobody from this group yet, so we'll take these three, it'll have to be very quick but say who you are and what your question is I,
2: I have already tweeted, I'm sorry um, <laughs> I, I, I'm Adam Wagner I'm a barrister, I'm just I, I wanted to go back to Judge Bonello um, and I mean, isn't that judgment exactly the kind of crossover into politics which, the, which shouldn't be happening at the courts, and I, I, I know that it, you were asked whether you, you agree with it or not but just isn't that exactly what shouldn't be going on and just on judges are there judges that come to the courts um, from whatever kinds of states which you know are not as good quality as, as other judges um, and is anything done about that in the court for example are they kept off key cases are they trained
0: yeah good there's a lot of people who say i, I want need to take two more but there's That is a point of view you find in this country about some of the judges from people who say they know about it. So it's an important one to address. The lady who was standing up now needs to ask a pretty short question, having said who she is. Madam.
7: Angela Ellis-Jones, what would you say to the criticism that from the 1970s onwards, many um, European Convention Court of Human Rights judgments have been just a distillation of left-wing prejudices um, and... The interpretation of the convention has been done with a strong bias to the values of the left. You also left. speak
1: a little louder, please. I have difficulties to hear.
7: Um, the criticism that since the 1970s many European Court judgments have been just a distillation of left-wing prejudices and that the convention has been interpreted with a bias to the values of the left. For example, in Britain we have umpteen foreign criminals whom we're expected to um, allow to continue residing in this country, whom we would love to send back, but apparently we, we can't because they would face persecution in the countries from which they've come, but they would only be persecuted because of wrongful acts that they've committed there. So quite frankly, Right. It's just their own Thanks. fault.
0: Thanks, Angela. That's built into a bit of editorial. But we get, you get the point about your being a distillation of left-wing positions, which I is an important criticism of the court. You I what... understood.
1: Could you reformulate a little? Uh, a I'll,
0: I'll, I'll reformulate in a way that Angela will approve of, I think, that there is a common view that the court subscribes to what the questioner described as kind of a set of left-wing assumptions about how society should be organized. And that, therefore, human rights has become, I mean, we don't want to get into it too much, but it's an important point, has become a kind of politically agenda for the left. That would be the question. The examples we can take or leave, I think. But that's the question. We have one last question. This gentleman is now going to ask it. Thank thank you. Uh, First of all, thank you for coming
2: here to speak to us all. Uh, My question is... And you
0: are who? um,
3: Yeah, of course.
2: Um, I am Young Byun. I'm a second-year law student. I'd like to ask, uh, to what extent has the inclusion of countries with um, authoritarian governments and dodgy human rights records at the very best, um, to what extent has the inclusion of those countries um, has affected A, the authority of the court and changed the human rights situations in those countries?
0: So it's dodgy judges, dodgy countries, (laughs) dodgy, dodgy political ideology. The word dodgy is an important word to get right in English. Highly suspect. <laughs> and we need to finish pretty soon. So I hope this is our last chunk.
1: I, I do hope I am not a dodgy judge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I try to, to answer the, the questions. Frankly speaking, the second question, I, I, your question, madame, I don't know exactly how to answer it. But... Uh, Please forgive me, but as regards uh, the first question about Al-Skaini, well, you know, the the problem is that uh, a a jurisdiction in international court like the European Court of Human Rights, when it's uh, confronted with very, very serious violations of human rights such as torture or arbitrary uh, deprivation of liberty, uh, its uh, temptation should not be to say, well, if the things have taken place elsewhere than in Europe, we just uh, uh, close our eyes and we can do anything for that. That's the reason why for al I was not of the opinion of Judge Bonello, and I was in the majority, I was in the minority, and as I said, and I repeated, uh, it's a tendency of the international public law and the request for justice to uh, try to find the solutions and jurisdiction even in this kind of uh, cases. As regards the arrival of authoritarian governments to the Council of Europe and to the court, uh, it's very controversial. I, I try to answer in my book <laughs> uh, to this uh, kind of questions. You, you know that after the fall of uh, Berlin Wall. There was a highly political controversy in Europe and within the Council of Europe. Should we accept the new democracies or the authoritarian governments which which try to become more democratic or should let them aside? And finally, the Western European countries which had the key Uh, to to this uh, question, said, well, it's better to have them inside than outside. Was it a good uh, decision or not? It's also still controversial. Uh, Finally, according also to 13 years of experience in in, uh, Strasbourg, not only in the court, but watching the Council of Europe and whatever else is uh, around, it seems to me that it was a less unreasonable solution to have those countries coming because finally more or less even if you have ups and downs even if you have a a great failure of the system which was uh, the Chechen uh, war or the two Chechen wars um, finally the, the presence of the courts, the influence on the public opinion, national and international was more in favor of countries like Russia, Ukraine, and others entering the the Council of Europe. Finally, now there is a country which is an alibi. I, I don't plead for its entry in the Council of Europe. It's Belarus because Belarus is not only an authoritarian government, but it's really a dictatorship. There is no really uh, checks and balances. There are no checks and balances in this country. There is a, a leader and, uh, and no, no political uh, opposition and so forth. But, um, for instance, Russia. Uh, it's clear that Russia has created a number of problems to the Council of Europe and to the court. I remember at a certain time I had a, a meeting A few years ago with the president of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, he said, well, our problem in the Inter-American Court is that we have not the United States as a member. And I said, and our problem is that we have Russia as a member. (laughs) (laughs) You understand? Uh, Well... Sorry, madame, would you like to, to formulate... Well, maybe, maybe,
0: maybe we can in conversation afterwards, because we're okay, running out, okay. out of time. But I think it's good that if you have a, a chance to... to talk. Yes, but I uh, no idea of the answer. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's eight, 8 o'clock, and uh, a lot of you will be remembering that this is St. Valentine's Day, which is the one day of the year when the English are fantastically romantic. So... It's a terrific thing that you all took time out from building emotional lives to come here. (laughs) And what we've given you instead, uh, you may not have an emotional life, or when you're late for the arrangement, you won't have an emotional life, but you will have had an intellectually stimulating event. I really am committed to breaking down the assumptions behind these public lecture series and having somebody with, crikey, you know, an hour and a quarter to talk to us. And it's a bit of a risk because the individual needs to have the staying power and the intellectual honesty and engagement to be able to do it and not hide behind a script. And what we have had tonight is somebody who's embraced the questions and been really, I hope you won't be written up in the daily mail through any imprudence tonight, uh, but you have done startlingly uh, well in terms of trying to address the questions specifically asked. And I'm sure you all feel that. The tweeting has been terrific. There's been lots of come in, both from people outside and people here. And we want to keep these two elements to our events uh, program for the rest of the academic year. We have Lady Brenda Hale, whom Jean-Paul knows well, coming in March. And we have me, me, on Tuesday. So if you want to come and ask me a question or tweet a question from some hideaway, uh, you can do that. I'm talking about liberty and security and have views about things like Russia and so on in the European system. So you'll hear that perspective from me. That's on Tuesday. And those are our next ones. We've got a a, a trial. We're putting austerity on trial in the Law Department on the 1st of March as well. So we're trying to do public events in an imaginative way. But uh, Bradley, who's here to my right, has been responsible for a lot of that. I'd like to thank him very much. I'd like to thank those of you who've come and those of you who've tweeted for having helped keep this show on the road. But as we wind down and finish the evening... I would especially like to thank Jean-Paul Costa for what was a fantastically interesting, provocative and stimulating evening. Jean-Paul, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, I, I think it would be fair for me to have the final word. Uh, As Connor said, it's Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is a day of love. And thanks to all of you, you have been lovely. (laughs)